fantastic episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm Nell Shamrell Harrington here as always, or almost always, as one of your hosts. And I have a very special guest with me uh, this week, which I'm very excited about. I have Mr. David McAllister. How are you doing today, David? I'm doing fine, Nell. Um, it's, it's great to see you um, here in person. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Back when functional programming was making its resurgence, I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there and it almost felt like it was on hype and I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language that's built on the Erlang virtual machine and it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus, pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you want to learn that is going to make a difference for you and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix. And you can find that at elixirmix.com. Awesome. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your background. I know you've, you've got a, a longer background than, than many people do uh, in the, I, I'm not saying you're old, uh, but <laughs> in, 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 the, in, in the open source world. So tell me a little more about it. Sure. Uh, so I, I've spent a lot of time doing various things in here, but um, I started with open source literally in 1994 with Linux 09.3 and then took it through, introduced it into Silicon Graphics, um, one of the premier companies in the 90s. And from then, I've been heavily involved in open source in general. Um, I thrive on the, the concepts of emerging technologies and being able to innovate things. And open source does that without any hesitation, massive functionalities. But it gets you into really interesting things like talking to people and understanding what people are doing, not just what the code is doing inside of here. I won a Golden Penguin in 2002. I'm very proud of that. Um, it was the return of the geek squad to beat out the nerd squad. Um, in, in, in uh, technology trivia. In my category, which I was not expecting it to be, turned out to be chemistry, uh, where they would throw up a chemical equation and say food or poison. <laughs> so, so it was rather interesting that there was one that was that C6H5OH, uh, which everybody immediately goes, oh my God, what is this? Well, technically it's a poison, but it's actually not. Most people enjoy one or two of those after work every single day. So that's, that's your drinking alcohol straight yeah. up. Ah, I gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Right. So that, yeah. um, so I was also named as one of the pioneers of open source about three years ago at this point in time. And I'm very awesome. proud of that. Um, and I will continue to live, breathe and die open source, um, open source geek, Sanders Wonk. And as you can tell, I'll talk for any reason at all. Well, that, that's fantastic. And thank you for, as one of the people who's benefited from your law, your <sighs> From your vast work in open source, I want to personally thank you for that, and I bet a bunch of our listeners will as well. Thanks. I appreciate that. All right. Well, today our topic is multi-dimensional monitoring in RED. And I saw this topic, and I thought, oh, yeah, there was that guy who spoke about it at DevOps Talk Sydney when I was there, and then I realized that was you. Uh, so quick plug, if you're in the Asia-Pacific area, Asia-Pacific Australia, definitely check out the DevOps talks. They're fantastic. But why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction into RED? So, yeah, so that's great. Um, thanks, thanks again for letting me talk about something near and dear to my, my heart right now. And RED 
is a subset of what was called the Google, Google Golden Signals, um, which was out of their SRE-related book. And it was originally came out by a gentleman named Time Wilkie, um, who broke this down into something that actually works really well. It was designed for microservices. So RED stands up for rate, error, and duration. Uh, you can think of it as rate as the number and size of the transactions that are going on between your services. Um, error is pretty self-obvious. Something's not working, something's working incorrectly, or something just doesn't feel right. And duration, uh, which is how long are things taking in between each of these things. So it was a subset of the Golden Signals. It sort of dropped out what's called saturation, because honestly, in an elastic environment, which most microservices live in, saturation is not the same area of concern that things like how fast they are, how well they're communicating, and are we getting the right results uh, means to all these different places. Got it. Yeah, that, that is interesting to think about. You know, I'm thinking back to 10 years ago when I was using you know, real bare metal servers on a in a lab in the University of Washington physics department. And I remember we were always very concerned about disk use, about uh, memory use, monitoring that because there was no place to go if that filled up. But it sounds like with microservices, the concerns are a little different. Yeah, microservices are, are actually kind of different. So, you know, it's, when you're looking at microservices, there's also the misconception that people want to make them as small as possible. And they shouldn't, they should make them as small as necessary. So that you can have microservices that are performing excellent functionality, but they're really only performing one function. So that means you need a lot of them at times, but you need them for very short periods of time. And so the, the flow, ebb and flow happens inside of here. Because we're not working in a batch environment or a pure streaming environment, we don't necessarily always have the same storage limitation needs, but I will tell you that time is one of those things that will haunt you for years if you get it wrong. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So when you talk about rate errors duration, are you talking about like a big, you know, I know execs love their dashboards, a big overall view of what your microservices are doing? Or are you thinking about something where you drill in and deep dive a little more or is it, is it both? So it's actually both. And that's part of what, what this whole concept around multidimensional characteristics are. Um, you can think of some, in some ways that this is an observability problem. Observability is a, a hot term, uh, even though it is really a system attribute and not a term. I've had some interesting discussions on Twitter with that. We always have interesting discussions on Twitter with someone. For, for better or worse, we do. <laughs> right, for that. Um, but observability is the signal to noise and problem. And the problem is, is you've got to figure out how to get the right signals out of the noise of all of the information that can be coming to you at one point in time for this. Um, I call it uh, monitoring at the Chuck Norris level. So um, it basically means not only do you have to be able to see it, you have to be able to respond to it. And that's where we start getting multidimensional inside of here. Your original question is, is it a dashboard? Yes, it should be a dashboard. And the dashboard should be an aggregatable set of monitoring points, metrics that can be aggregated. But at the same point in time, I don't just need to know that the number is, um, actually I was talking to my VP, uh, that the number is 15.917 and there were three occurrences of it. I actually need to know what the maximum points were, the minimum points, and I need to know the change of activity that's going on. So RED gives you a, a way of grouping things together um, so that you can always look at the same outlook layout and actually determine what the meanings of each piece are. Um, 
and it's it's so you know the sort of the philosophy viewpoint here is it is the place that that normalizes the functionality while allowing you to be as flexible as you need to be. I've seen some really cool dashboards. Um, so there are, there are vendors that are now really beginning to understand the power of red. And there are some really cool dashboards that are coming out here. But the problem is it's not just the metrics. You need everything else you can get around here to actually resolve the problem. I think that's really uh, sums up the, the, the meaning of this age of big data is we have all this data now. We can monitor more than we ever could even imagine even five or 10 years ago. But we have to do something with it, it sounds like. As you mentioned, we have to find that signal in the noise of what, what our applications, what our infrastructure is trying to tell us. One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time. And a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem, and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. How would you map what you see you know, when you're monitoring Red with what the user experiences? So, so let's let's sort of take an example, sort of this, the traditional. Everybody's familiar buying something online, an e-commerce model. So, when you actually go into your front end, your web thing, and you you sign in, that's actually a service that's happening here. There's a transaction that's going through that. From that single transaction of you signing in, there may be a number of other services to get get invoked that you are not aware of. It may look up your credit card information. It may look up your previous purchases. It may go off and, and hit something that says, oh, let's recommend that they look at these pieces inside of here. And all these things come together to make one discrete view from an end-user viewpoint. But, you know, um, it's, it's the standard swan approach. It's really elegant on top, but by God, it's paddling like mad underneath here. Now, imagine that any single point of that stalls out. A slow consumer, all of a sudden, it's hung waiting for a thread lock to release or something like this. And the user is sitting there waiting, going, why haven't I logged in? Okay, they're not going to be happy. There's actually was a, um, a Google uh, survey done, I think, two years ago that came back and um, said that uh, literally, if you have to wait five seconds for your website to respond in an e-commerce environment, more than 100% will bail out. Which More means, than 100% will bail right, out. So, so before that, 100% bailing out is, is people who are waiting for that coming into this. But these are people who have actually waited to get the result and then leave. Ah, oh, gotcha, gotcha. So, so it's not just the people that are that are bailed out beforehand. It's the people who actually said, I've waited for five seconds. Yeah, you're back, but I don't care anymore. And so that gets you into this concept of rate and duration. How many transactions are going on and how long are the transactions happening? And again, if you have a stall out, particularly in a microservices environment, what's stalled out may not have anything to do with what you actually see on your screen. So it can be somewhere else, totally else. Red indicates that to the granularity of that communication pathway. And that is invaluable as we get more and more complexity in these environments. We use an example um, quite often. We talk about building this e-commerce site in 2000, 2002. And it was like, seven items. Here's the web server front end piece. And here are the five things that you run in the background and, and you went away. And then we had the cloud appear. And my God, everything got easier, but not simpler. 
instead of an ally, instead of with the AWS, build that same in commerce, was about 20 different working services to put together. What was five is now 20. And now in a microservices environment, I've got 40 to 60 services for each single transaction going through. And so my life gets complex to your point about big data. I've got lots more data coming in here and the granularity is increasingly important to find uh, what's keeping me from doing business. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to imagine someone like Amazon and I know this, I don't think it's happened in a long time, but it has happened to you. All this, if all transactions have stopped, Yes. on Amazon.com or any e-commerce site, something's really, really wrong. Right. Um, and in fact, if you remember, what do they call this? They, 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 they do the big sort of Black Friday type sale in July every year. Right. And in 2018, in the first 45 minutes, basically Amazon stopped sending uh, servicing requests. Um, and it was a case where they put a new piece of software in place for one single service and that service failed to uh, scale elastically. So as the demand went up, that single service choked itself to death. Red would have identified the service instantly that something wasn't responding at the right point in time, and they would have been able to respond to it very quickly. Um, instead, I think it took them about three hours, which is not bad, uh, but then on the size of Amazon and the fact that you just dropped a billion dollars of, of loose change, um, is probably still not a good indication of, of you know, having that mistake. So what would be a good example outside of uh, retail? I'm thinking like a well, I'm thinking of like an IRS site or something yes. that is where people file their tax returns. And I know it did go down. I don't think it was this year, but last year yep. as well. So where, where else could you see this applying? So you can actually see this in sort of any request-based transaction. Um, and it's increasingly important how, how important that request-based transaction is here. My former experience, very honestly, um, I'll point to something like the, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration's what's called SWIM, System-Wide Information Management System. It, is a, uh, it keeps track of all the information, IoT-based, of all the planes anywhere in the U.S., and it's currently being, I think, or has been adopted into Europe, into Australia, and into Japan. So wow. you can literally go and find out everything that's going on here. Now, if something happens inside of there, you need to be able to respond to this and say, okay, did something happen to the plane or did something happen to the service or did something happen to the communications? And it's not the same impact, but I, I understand that air traffic controllers get really nervous when they lose planes. Um, so that, I can imagine uh, so. <laughs> I, and, and I will get nervous if they lose my plane uh, in particular. Right. I remember uh, there was, this was a few years ago, there was a passenger airliner that was shot down over the Ukraine. And I was looking at uh, some site that was showing the positions of all airplanes the day before that and then the day after that. And no one was flying over Ukraine. And in that case, you, you could very easily correlate. So no one wants to be in a flight path where a jetliner was just shut down. But it shows you how the real world impacts metrics and vice versa. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the thing is, is that metrics are, are simple for us to understand. So we're, you know, humans are actually really good at pattern matching and believe we're really good at extrapolation, uh, quote, degree in statistics, I know how to lie for a living. And one of the things that we're always taught is that you, extrapolation is not worth much. Interpolation, there's some valid validity into it, but extrapolation, 
you don't know what's going to happen really here, but the humans think they are. And so metrics give us this way of looking and saying, oh, the pattern looks odd or the pattern looks okay. And that's really important in this red environment because I'm only actually watching three things. And, and you know, the magic number of three here, the red, red functionality, magic number three is humans are really good at watching three things, but not That is four. true. Oh, I see. So looking at this and going, I can scan across and go, oh, these three things look okay. But I had the fourth one in it, I can look at them and go, oh, all four of them look okay, but I can't put them together and say the three together look okay as well. And since, since, again, red's characteristics, each one of them can impact what's happening in somebody else. So, you know, um, again, using the example, I've got lots of little, little transactions going back and forth inside of here, and I run out of bandwidth. All of a sudden, my transactions have slowed down. My rate actually may not really show anything out of the ordinary. My duration will, because my time has just gone up. But it's not a duration problem, it's a rate problem. Or I have a slow consumer, somebody's just not processing data really fast. I literally, we had one of those this morning. <sighs> sigh, sigh, heavy oh, sigh. And, and, and life. yeah, it's, and it's, it's one of those cases of going, okay, so why is the queue filling up? Why is the, again, the rate of things filling up, but at the same point in time, my duration has, has vanished and it's an error, but it never got reported as an error because everything was working fine. It was producing the right results. Justin wasn't producing the right results at the time that needed to happen. And so each aspect of red can show up someplace else. And again, you can look across all three things and go, oh, look, my things have slowed down and my bandwidth has suddenly increased massively. Okay, that's an indication probably that Something is not wrong in terms of duration, but I'm out of bandwidth or I'm out of, of the rate tunnel, if you will. The piping is not working correctly here. Oh, look, all of a sudden my rate is decreasing rapidly inside of this, this thing, and I'm not, getting, I'm not seeing transactions. I probably have an error someplace. Something isn't working. And in the observability world, the things you know never hurt you. It's the things you don't know. That will always burn you. So, so the phrase unknown unknowns becomes really important in this, this space here. One of the nice features is that by pulling all this data together is I can aggregate those metrics even if I didn't think about them in the first pass. Mm. I can actually go and reconstruct the metrics and watch them from then on without having to go back in and, and dealing with all the little things that say, okay, start over. I can pull it because I've got all the data. Right. And so that makes it really easy for, for you to grow your environments without having to perfectly plan your environment when you start. I like that. And that, by the way, to me, that is the, one of the strongest recommendations I can say about Red is the fact that you can start simple and grow to what you needed to grow to. Awesome. One ambition I had early on in my career was actually to build iOS apps. And so, of course, my solution was to start a podcast talking about how to build iOS apps. And so we asked around, we got some ideas, and eventually Josh Susser from the Ruby Rogues podcast put up the idea of the iFreaks show, and that's what we called it. You can find it at iFreakShow.com, and every week we're talking about 
iOS development and Swift and Objective-C and libraries and reactive programming and all of the things that go into making good iOS apps. I don't run the show anymore, but we've got Andrew Madsen who puts together the curriculum for Lambda School. We've got James Uber who's been doing iOS development as a freelancer for a long time. We've got Mike Holt, who's a good friend of mine who's worked in Xamarin and in Swift and currently does a bunch of interesting work on that. And we've got other people that we're bringing in all the time to make that show better. So if you're trying to keep up on all of the advancements that Apple makes, all of the announcements from WWDC, and you want to hear from people who are doing this day in and day out and talking about it and teaching people about it and doing the work with it, then you definitely need to check out iFreaks. You can find it at iFreaksShow.com. That's I-P-H-R-E-A-K-S show.com. Well, one of the things we talk about a lot in the DevOps world is the intersection of technology and humanity. Uh, how, you know, how do you see the approach of how an operations team or a, dare I say a DevOps team or such, how, how do you see how they operate changing? So, you know, it, we've always had this problem. Um, actually, that's not fair. We haven't always had this problem. But we have this problem that we still, even though we understand DevOps, it's been around for a while. It's a, a fairly well understood philosophy of approach. There's still this sort of distinct side that says, I'm the ops side, I'm the dev side. Mm-hmm. And there are not a lot of perfect matches in between that says, oh, I'm really DevOps. I, I knew, I've known a couple where it was also the other extreme where the guy wrote the code, delivered the code. It's one of the largest um, sporting information sites in the world here. And you know nobody else could actually write the code and deliver the code. So he was he was the the single DevOps person. That's, that's dangerous. Right. That's also really bad uh, from this viewpoint. But what happens here is that all of a sudden we're taking information that's important to both sides and putting them on one platform. Sort of the counter or the the other piece of a um, a red environment, something called use U S E utilization, mm-hmm. saturation, and errors. And it's amazing how errors shows up in every single one of these versions probably because when things break, things are bad. Um, but use is, is really important when you're looking at the infrastructure, even if it's IaaS on a cloud, it's you wanna know what the machines are doing here, okay? And then sort of the golden signals, signals model by itself was, oh, is the application running fine with the machine? Okay, that's the two things. And Red started breaking down that, that barrier a little bit and says, okay, it's the application and how it works with the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, use, I use a phrase occasionally that sort of talks about when you're looking at this thing, it's you don't really want to monitor your system. You want to monitor the work on your system. And the work on your system is sort of the dev side and the system monitoring is on the ops side. Um, and so what I'm now doing is I'm monitoring the work on the system. And by the way, I am monitoring the system because I'm not stupid uh, for this. And those also, also sort of actually bring those two teams together because they now actually have a vested set of stakes in making everything work appropriately. The nice other thing is pure devs. I was one for a while. Mm-hmm. Pure devs um, hate finding problems. They much rather write cool code, very honestly. And so... With Red, you can narrow to where the problem exists so much faster that you can then turn around and not spend your lifetime trying to figure out what went wrong. You can spend a little bit of time fixing what went wrong and get back to doing the cool stuff. 
Yeah, it reminds me, I came from a strong dev background as well. And I like to tell the story of how it was a young dev, let's say that. Uh, I was trying to, I had put together this report. It worked fine in development, but when I deployed it to production, the report didn't work. And I thought there was something wrong with my code. And there was, but it was with my database query. I was DDoSing myself uh, every Whoa. time I tried to generate oh, uh, this report. I was literally knocking my database over. So I had to look at what was happening on my database system in order to understand uh, what was wrong with my code and how there was something going wrong in the way that they were interacting together. Yeah, and, and, you know, and it's amazing how something as simple as that you know, when you said this, my mind went, oh, uh, my God, of course, but I never would have thought of it before you said it. We had we had a problem recently where our, our queuing and ingest, two of our systems just sort of slowed down and stopped working. And we had to go all the way down and look at the thread logs to ah. figure out what was going on. So, you know, with so many threads happening inside of here, you don't, you would never try to record all the thread logs, but we record them in one, in 20 minute blocks, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so we had the block and we went out and looked at it and we, we found out that there was a software upgrade for one service that had destroyed the configuration that would have protected them from doing this. They'd forgotten to look at the configuration variables mm -hmm. to do this. And again, the numbers wouldn't have shown it to us. The numbers did show us something was going wrong. The numbers wouldn't have shown it to us. And this is again, this multi-dimensional. How do you drill in? How do you take that number and say, that number came from here, but that number was caused by here? And that's, that's why the multidimensional aspects of RED become really important. Right, it's, uh, I'm sorry to be bringing in so many analogies, but right after college, I worked in healthcare and it's, it's sounding like you know, you're monitoring the vital signs of a patient. If their blood pressure is elevated, that, that is something, that is a data point, but there's probably something causing it. Right. It's, not, it's not just the, that the blood, the blood pressure by itself deciding to, to be up higher than it should be. No, <laughs> let's hope not anyway, but yeah, that's actually a really good analogy. I like that analogy a lot. I may steal that one if you don't mind. Go right ahead. Oh, good, because that, that one's really obvious. There is always something else causing it. Yeah. And again, observability is what's going on in the system by looking at its external visible components Got it. for this. And so, yeah, we do. We look at heart rates. We look at, at things and we've gotten more and more granularity. You know, you occasionally get wired and somebody says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah your heart's beating just fine um, type of thing here. And that's really good to know. But I also tell you, if it ever doesn't beat all right, I want to know that one even faster. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Awesome. Cool. Well, we've, there's some interesting uh, changes that have happened on the, the, the tech horizon. And one is the idea of service meshes. Yes. Uh, can you dive a little bit into that and how Red applies to them? Yeah, I love service I, meshes. Oh, I'm glad you love you service meshes. You know, so, you know, Envoy, Envoy Istio, Istio uses Envoy, Linkerd, Concourse. They're all so seriously cool. The, the headache for duration is that we need to be able to measure a very fine granularity what's actually happening between these various transactions. And usually we talk about that and you'll hear it at distributed uh, tracing, distributed request tracing. Um, I tend to call it distributed request tracing for, for various reasons because I'm difficult to get along with. Uh, but inside of a microservice, the time the microservice takes, if it's written correctly, probably isn't as important as the communication pathway between services. Ah. So how long things take. 
And most of the service meshes, and service meshes just basically build a, a regulated way of putting together communications between microservices, including self-discoveries, including the ability to simply say, oh, I don't need to know that socket A talks from this point to this point. It's just a, a, a much cleverer way of looking at middleware messaging, but it's basically for these data pathway uh, transactions. And all the really good ones are already wired for distributed tracing. Mm-hmm. And so I don't have to actually go build the distributed tracing into all my, my application space. Um, you know, I'm sure that people have done distributed tracing instrumentation of, of big applications in matters of hours. But in general, what, what I hear is it takes about a year for somebody to really actually instrument for a distributed tracing request. Gotcha. Right now we're kind of in the middle of, is it open tracing, open census, or the new open telemetry, or is it some proprietary functionality, or do I have to replace a library, which is a, of the other choice that you've got, and just look at the library pieces. Service meshes in a microservices environment gives you duration that mm-hmm. you don't have to instrument. Mm, that sounds that wonderful. And that is the coolest thing that I have run into in the last year. I am so, so psyched. I love Istio. It is just such a cool, sensible product. And it's well-designed and well-written. So, you know, advice to anybody, if you're in microservices, go look at Istio. Fantastic. And what do you think about something like a Kubernetes operator, which, you know, extends the Kubernetes API so that for specific applications? Right. So the nice thing about Kubernetes operators, and this is something that um, that our lead here is actually believes is one of the biggest changes that we're going to see in the next year, is Kubernetes operators are going to um, bring in more and more third-party characteristics into the world of Kubernetes without everyone having to be Kubernetes um, uh, experts. So Kubernetes on the small scale is actually not, not hard to work with. Kubernetes on a large scale, we have, we have a, um, a company that we've worked with where their Kubernetes clusters were each 1,000 machines, and they had 50 of them. Whoa. It is the biggest single Kubernetes environment I have ever seen in my life. And I will tell you that I, every time anyone threw anything at trying to monitor this thing, it fell over dead. Yeah, so, that, that sounds like a beast. It was, and it, it's, it's two things. It was, it, it's doing a lot of work, I will admit, but it probably grew organically rather than being grown sensibly inside of here. So it's a two-factor two approach. Um, but Kubernetes operators means that, oh, I want to bring in Oracle, fine, just bring in Oracle. I want to bring in blah, just bring in blah. And operators are going to change the nature of how the world moves from existing applications into the Kubernetes and microservices environments. Companion to that, by the way, is going to be this, the function as a service serverless environments because they're going to bring in um, the ability to, in a sense, do microservices for batch operations. And so that's going to change the nature of this entire game as well. Right. I, I think a lot about that with, with the, you know, popularity of serverless. And I think it is beyond the buzzword uh, status now. It, it is a real thing. And I always go back to wondering, where do you uh, store your state? 
in yeah. that case. Uh, because, I mean, you, you might be able to do a batch process that's great, but you need to store the results somewhere, right. uh, which is where I think Kubernetes is very helpful with stateful states and uh, stateful, stateful sets. Uh, states are stateful too, but stateful sets. And it's interesting how it, it does seem like Kubernetes really is kind of the 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 center point for all of these different types of technology coming together. And I'm sure there's other things besides Kubernetes as well, but it's it's the one that I know of. It's really fascinating how big of an effect it's had on the entire technology ecosystem. Yeah, especially since, you know, Kubernetes 1.0 and the CNCF were put together in July of 2015. So literally in slightly over four years, it's like, oh, if you're not talking about Kubernetes, you're, you know, your buggy whips day and your machines must be running on steam power. Um, so it has really changed that marketplace. The headache, by the way, though, is if you go look at the Kubernetes ecosystem, it's so big that nobody can actually absorb what it's doing anymore. It's true, there's and, not a prescription yet. Right. And so, so the Kubernetes piece is stable and is probably a, if you're not thinking about it, something's wrong with you. And all these other pieces are evolving inside of here. The, the thing is, can they evolve fast enough to keep up the growth aspect that we're going to have inside of here? Um, again, I, I believe that service mesh SEO needs to get there as soon as possible. Um, you know, things like Helm, where we actually have the recipes for installations become really important. I think Kubernetes operators needs to graduate as soon as it possibly can. Um, and honestly, I want to have, just because it's the nature of my game, I want open metrics to make a splash and actually stabilize how we approach getting metrics from one place to another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's getting information to the people who need it and displayed in the way they need it is, is I think that's cru been crucial since the, I'm gonna say since the dawn of web operations, but I think since the dawn of human beings working together, right. I believe we have, yeah. well, well, thank I will you. Also, yeah, I'll also have one other thing here is that last year Prometheus shocked me by how fast the adoption mm -hmm. for Prometheus existed. Yep. And I think it's the, the metric standardization aspect that's really doing it. I agree with you on that. Well, thank you so much. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, I forgot to ask at the beginning, do you go by Dave or David? Um, Dave, usually I also answer, hey, you and you dummy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great conversation. Uh, I, I think server service mesh is something we definitely want to dive into in a later episode. So we might very well reach out and have you on again. Um, I'd love to come to come spend time talking about service mesh. Um, I will also tell you that my uh, the, the guy who runs my engineering team actually, before he came here, he ran a company and his entire product was built on service mesh. Wow. And so it's, it, it might be a good combination to get, get a, a deep understanding of how it actually works in the real world. So kind of cool stuff. Thanks for your time today as well. I, I really appreciate this. And if you can't tell, I'm kind of excited about this space. Awesome. Cool. Well, let's go ahead and move on to picks as we close out. Uh, my pick is the Switch video game Fire Emblem Three Houses. That is what I played for most of my flight to and from Australia and also to and from Buffalo recently. It's extremely engrossing. It's a great way to, to kill a flight, but the story is all the story is wonderful. And the Ooh. story is what brings me back to it. So if you have a Nintendo Switch, if you like gaming, highly recommend checking that one out. Uh, what's something that's made your life better recently, David? Yeah, so, so I have to admit, um, I'm a huge soccer fan. And uh, for me, 
Uh, it's literally, I just recently got my Fulham football club in England, um, got my membership card so that my next trip to England, I can go actually watch a game and sit in the oldest existing stands in England, known as the cottage, and watch my team play. And I'm just so excited because I've got this little weird card in the mail here that I've been showing everybody and most of the people in my office go, yeah, so what? Um, for that. You're a car card-carrying football fan. That's I'm fantastic. I'm a card-carrying football fan. Yes, I am. Awesome. <laughs> so again, this has been great. I loved it. Awesome. Thanks again, David. And everyone, thank you for listening. Uh, we will be back next week with another episode. And until then, take care, everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.